0: Saoirse Gunn is one of the Institute of Advanced Study Early Career Fellows at the University of Warwick. She's just finished her PhD exploring the politics of writing in South African literature after the end of apartheid. In particular, she's interested in the representation of sexual violence. Sorsha spoke to us about her work. You stated in one of your articles that the end of apartheid signalled a huge shift in South African writing. and There's this idea that writing has to reveal the brutal truth about the past to enable a brighter future for South Africa. Could you explain more about this idea of storytelling becoming central to the process of healing?
1: Yeah, well, I think the idea of storytelling really started before the process of healing. During apartheid, writing became a way of countering the official myth of of the apartheid state, um, so it was a truth-telling discourse. It was a counter-revolutionary idea. And writers really worked with a political agenda, and they worked to write fiction that was going to correct or disrupt the official uh, apartheid state narrative. So they really wrote fiction concentrated on kind of uh, stories about people fighting for their freedom, um, or people in prison, or going about their day in a way that was going to work against that official sort of uh, narrative. And then it kind of developed an aesthetic developed from that that focused on minute kind of documentary style, uh, newspaper reporting style almost, where everything was minute to minute, it was very gritty, it was very uh, r- realist in its approach to writing. and And it was all kind of, you know, this idea of truth-telling... Storytelling that was going to correct um, what they felt was a distorted worldview, and and many critics have referred to it as sort of a, a faction rather than fiction. So this kind of merging of fact with fiction, N- not so much the historical facts that have to be correct, but the general perspective was corrected, um, and then from there it developed with I guess the nineteen ninety four elections the. Uh, democracy, there was this sort of idea that storytelling could heal the problems of the past so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for example its motto was uh, to reveal is to heal, so this notion of you know telling your story of putting the facts out there, of putting your story out there this would lead to healing. Of course the idea that to reveal is to heal is quite problematic and not everybody in South Africa agreed with with the TRC's approach, uh, particularly with the sense of justice. To reveal and tell your story is fine but also in what context and how you tell that story is just as important. So without a kind of corresponding sense of justice, uh, I think it that the idea of storytelling alone is, is not enough. Um, and in that sense, a lot of people refused to tell their story. Um, they didn't want to speak out because they felt they didn't want to speak in, in an environment, in a context that was not going to be uh, to their benefit.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things I wondered when I was reading your article, and you were talking about storytelling becoming central to the process of healing and telling the truth and revealing what had happened and I did wonder how much of that was actually the truth or a sanitised version of the Mm. truth
1: during apartheid censorship was huge Um, J.M. Kutsia has said none of his books have been banned ever been on a a banned list uh, which is perhaps maybe something that he feels he's missing that badge of honour if you like. It became to be a banned author became a, a badge of honor and, and a and a source of pride uh for, for many writers. So yeah, I mean getting published um what sort of writing was accepted and what was then banned um was was always uh controversial. Um in in terms of the post apartheid government and, and sort of culture and uh social conditions the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really did try and push for this uh, narrative of healing based in in sort of telling the truth and truth discourse, um, and a di- discourse of forgiveness as well. And I think a lot of people became disillusioned with that. Um, the sort of controversy surrounding books like Anki Krog's "Country of My Skull," um, which reported her experiences of reporting on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And stories came out and they were in newspapers, they were on TV, they were written about in books like Crocs. And you have to ask, well, where is the analysis of this? How, you you know, it's all very fine and well to speak out, but to what end, uh, essentially? And to make sure that those people that are speaking are being heard um, and heard in a way that brings recuperation and reconciliation closer rather than makes people feel more isolated and alienated. Um, So it's not just what's being spoken, it's it's how it's being spoken. And in that respect, some writers like Ahmed Dangor in Bitter Fruit have uh, written stories about not speaking out, about adopting um, a a silence uh, in the face of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that is more empowering because to hold those sort of secrets or events in is, is to do something with it that's more powerful than speaking it out in a way where the this agency is, is taken away um, due to the, the sort of context of not being heard despite trying to speak.
0: So how does this relate to the way women and sexual violence has been portrayed in South African literature?
1: Good question. There... There are kind of two elements here, I guess. Um, One would be in a lot of gender studies literature, feminist literature. There is this whole discourse of silence. Um, Tilly Olsen, uh, Gayatri Spivak, uh, critics have written about um, silence. You know, silence as a way of disempowerment as well as a way of empowerment for women. Um, So there are more than there are multiple silences, if you like. silence can be used in a way that can foster agency, it can engender empowerment, and it can also be used to disempower. So to look at it not just as sort of a silence means one thing. Um, so across the board in feminism, this has been an area of interest and, and, and an area of debate. And uh, not everybody is in agreement there, of course. <laughs> uh, there's lots of toing and fro Um And I think then this relates to uh, South Africa as well. Representing something like um, sexual violence in any sort of literature is incredibly problematic, it's incredibly difficult, um, it's incredibly uh, emotional, um, and you have a responsibility to, as a researcher, to all uh, different uh, aspects of this to other researchers, to victims, to victims' families, and even to. To represent perpetrators is is it really difficult, or not represent them represent them in fiction, but also then to respond to their role in in the whole um, sexual violence discourse uh, is is quite um, problematic for many researchers. So in that sense, storytelling and silence becomes pretty much like the case in South Africa more generally with the truth and reconciliation commission the issues are quite similar uh, can you speak out who can speak out who does speak out who who speaks for whom um and where their what context are their voices heard if they're heard and how this can be used then in a positive way and also in 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 a negative way in some cases um so writers are I guess, working to create narrative strategies that allow for a really kind of complex level of, of understanding. And this, of course, then relates to legal discourses. Uh, there's a South African writer, Miriam Clally, um, who uses, when she kind of writes about uh, sexual violence or scenes of sexual violence, she names a lot of body parts. So she, you know, elbow, back, neck, arm, foot, leg, all these body parts are named and that is a strategy that sort of counteracts um, discourse in the courtroom where when a woman has to recount the events of Mm. an attack um, she has to name her body parts and it becomes almost like a double violation so if they're named in the narrative it becomes easier to speak about it in the courtroom Um, so you kind of have this sort of frame then, fiction can create this sort of frame or vocabulary um, that women can then use in other discourses like sociology, legal discourses and and politics hopefully. So there's a relationship in that sense between the academy and, and activism I guess.
0: I mean how prevalent was sexual violence towards women during apartheid?
1: Um it was very prevalent it still is very prevalent um it's very prevalent across the world still uh, statistics are astonishing off the top of my head i mean the statistics from south Africa are one in three women during their lifetime will be attacked in a, in a sexual manner uh, so it's quite it's quite difficult to deal with i mean there are something like eleven percent of of rapes and sexual violence uh sexual sexually violent attacks are reported to the police. And that makes up about 40,000 cases, depending on what study you look at. But you can kind of say 40,000, some say 52,000, some say 43, so it depends. Compared to maybe 100% of attacks in the UK being 40,000 a year. So, I mean, it's quite prevalent. Um, It happens in a whole lot of different contexts uh, and is becoming more urgent in, in kind of recent years with the AIDS and HIV pandi- mm. pandemic because uh, rape is quite literally can have this impact that is medically and physiologically stays with you for the rest of your life not just emotional scarring uh, so I think that's something that researchers are beginning to look into um, so it is it's used it was always used as a political weapon and, and that continues to be the case uh, but like anywhere in the world, it is it is still going on. But it's not talked about enough. People are scared to talk about it. It it's a crime that implicates the victim more so than the perpetrator in many cases, and people are embarrassed or shamed uh, to speak about their own experiences or um, to come, And it makes it more difficult to come to terms with and um, prosecuting cases is extremely difficult, uh, which is another reason. Why well, I think it's another reason why it becomes such a taboo subject. It's very often one person's word against another. so how do you prosecute a case like that? How mm. do you um prove beyond reasonable doubt uh, but it is it is something that is a problem in countries like South Africa but also in 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 the u k and across the world I'm working on uh, feminism, Literature and Rape Narratives which is a book I edited with Zoe Bridley Thompson that became more apparent um, where the, the different stories from around the world um, had common links um, that were about silence or shame or you know how to speak out and, and it was quite troubling in one way but also quite uh, encouraging to see that there are groups of, of scholars and groups of uh, community activists working Working towards a common goal, um, I guess, which is hopefully that these crimes will become less and less, and if in a perfect world, we'll stop altogether.
0: <laughs> if sexual, sexual violence is still a big problem in South Africa, or among other countries, what do you think has been the reaction to the narratives of sexual violence? It's quite interesting that there's this urge to reveal, but it's still going on. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, reactions are mixed. Um it's a very evocative topic, so you do find uh reactions to literary narratives and to uh scholarship or research in this area. Um some people think it's a topic best left alone. Um the uh writer Akman Dangor who I mentioned uh, earlier, he found this in particular um he has stated in works of non-fiction that he would like to redress this balance that there was a lack of uh, exposure of crimes basically committed uh and he wanted to kind of address that balance so stories weren't reported in the newspapers he he wanted to write about them to to bring them to light uh to to expose the not just the perpetrators but just the stories that this is what was going on and he felt people needed to know about it and the response to his books are, are mixed. Um, people have said it to him personally, and also um, in, in newspaper reports and, and reviews, that it should be best left alone because it's too hurtful. Mm. Um, and other people have said, you know, thank you for talking about this, for putting this out there, for making it known. So that there'll always be that uh, that mixed reaction. Um, I, I think you've got to expect that and what, how you deal with it then is is personal decision, I guess.
0: So you've, you've mentioned some key writers, but I'm just wondering, are there any others who've emerged in the post-apartheid South African literature that you think are particularly worthy of note?
1: There are lots of really good writers. <laughs> um, I guess with in the post-apartheid area, writers have been freed from this idea that they have to um, put the pen to political use, um, so you're starting well not starting there was there has been this tradition but you're, you you can see writers really pushing the boundaries a lot more exploring contemporary issues um, letting go of of apartheid and, and embracing post apartheid if you like um, but they also do write about the country's history and past and i guess i would mention um Cahisa sogo malope as one um her two novels. Well one is a novel Dancing in the Dust and the other uh is a novella, uh, The Mending Season. Um and she writes about um young women's experience. Um she herself is a political or political activist and human rights advocate. And she has said her her idea of writing is to restore narratives of people who who haven't been included in the official narrative. Uh, primarily of of women uh, women working in the ANC movement during apartheid and, and women's stories post-apartheid and she was she would be one I would mention um, she's got a, quite a good narrative style it's lively, it's engaging uh, and she's able to create pictures with her words which is, is quite good for the reader there are a few other Ahmed Dango I've mentioned several times uh, mm. he's very good and Sindhwe Magona as well who wrote Mother to Mother um, which is a book about the uh, story of the Fulbright scholar Amy Beale's death in in the township where she was tragically killed uh, during a riot and um, Magona's book Mother to Mother is a story of a letter from the uh, mother of the uh, perpetrator to the mother of the victim which is quite good and then for the those who might prefer uh, film uh, last year's film District 9 um, is quite good it's a multi-layered allegorical film that approaches the problems of apartheid and post-apartheid all in one and is, is well worth a watch.
0: So do you think that this idea of revealing the truth and this emerging narrative with the new authors that have come through in the post-apartheid period do you think they've had any real effect on being able to heal South Africa's troubles?
1: I hope so. Um, the, the philosopher Paul Ricoeur said um, uh, fiction gives eyes to the horrified narrator, eyes to see and to weep um, I think I've got that right but it is off the top of my head um, and I, I chose that as the epigraph to the collection of essays feminism, literature and Right narratives because I think it really gets to the heart of, of what fiction can do mm. you, you know the fiction gives you the opportunity and I think this is unique am- amongst the, the humanities, there are brilliant, brilliant studies on history, sociology politics, everything that Enrich our understanding, but what fiction can do is it can really bring you into another world. You can walk a mile in somebody else's shoes when you read that book. And so, of course, writers and readers have ethical responsibilities, and you know, there will always be controversy surrounding difficult subject matters. But essentially, especially when you're talking about human suffering, fiction can put a human face on it um very often the pain and of, of suffering gets lost in media reports and statistics so to read about it brings brings you back to what makes us human empathy understanding and and just really getting a look inside what somebody else goes through so i think in that respect fiction can be very useful um because it can open up people's experiences and it can make you feel empathy and maybe even understanding with somebody that you you didn't expect to in terms of what effect it has or what impact it has had on healing South Africa I I don't know I guess time will tell Mm. there are still a lot of problems post-apartheid South Africa is still really just in its embryonic stage um We've gotten through the the sort of euphoria of the Rainbow Nation and Nelson Mandela's presidency, and I guess trying to build a a shared history, a shared sense of what it is to be South African that doesn't always uh, look back upon hurt and trouble but tries to build something um, more constructive. Um, So time will tell, but I think it's a very good place to start.
0: Just from your experiences of what you know of South Africa now during the world cup obviously every everything went swimmingly and there were no major problems do you think that was south africa on its best behavior or do you think that showed that it really did have the capacity for change
1: um i think there are several things there Um, firstly i would say um south africa is is troubled but it gets a lot of bad press Mm -hmm. um so the kind of construction of South Africa, you know, more specifically Johannesburg, as a dangerous city, and the international media is perhaps slightly skewed uh, and and can get sensationalist at times. Undoubtedly, it, it, there's a kernel of truth in mm-hmm. in those those sort of reports, but at the same time, um, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of just normal day to day stuff. The everyday goes on. Yeah. Um, and so I think that. One of the things the World Cup did was give the world the opportunity to see South Africa working on a day to day basis to see you know cities and and towns that were just people were there for the World Cup, but they were also. The other side where they were just going about their day-to-day business and you know there wasn't this sort of catastrophic violence around every corner. There's, so it is it, it's like people say London is a dangerous city yeah. but many people go to London every day and walk around and it's perfectly okay. Um So I think it was a good opportunity for South Africa to show its best side, yes um, but that doesn't uh mean that they were on their best behaviour I think that they were just uh, a country as itself um, and that was a good good counterbalance to the endless reports um, of, of horrific violence but at the same time it also gave a great opportunity uh, for people to talk about the problems, to discuss them uh, to bring a fresh perspective to them to sort of engage again with, with South Africa after uh, a little bit of a gap um, and, and the euphoria of Uh, the transition to post-apartheid has sort of died down a little bit and people can see uh, perhaps more practical strategies for forging a new nation rather than rhetoric about Mm. uh, rainbow nations so hopefully the World Cup will leave a lasting and positive legacy